0: Welcome to Social Work Stories, a podcast exploring social work practice through stories and critical reflection. This podcast is recorded on Aboriginal country, lands which were never ceded. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and cultural knowledge holders of these lands and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We offer a warm welcome to any Indigenous listeners who are part of our podcast community around the world. If you have thoughts or feedback for our team, or just want to find our whole back catalogue of episodes, check out our website, socialworkstories.com. But for now, on with the episode. Hi everyone. It's Ben, one of your
1: Social Work Stories producers. Now, sorry for the awkward interruption, but I promise not to take up too much of your time. Look, the reason I'm getting involved is because we want you to know what's happening on our sister podcast Social Work Discoveries. Yes, the team run a few different podcasts and we think you'll love them all, just like you love social work stories. Now the Social Work Discoveries podcast is a series all about social work, research and making the world a better place. We've got lots of cool and interesting conversations with social work researchers from all around Australia and the world for you to listen to and learn from. The cool thing is is that all our guests are really open to chatting with me about their successes, their challenges, and the amazing opportunities to change the world from their very own perspectives. In fact, we've just recently released the latest Social Work Discoveries episode with Dr. Sarah Wayland from the University of New England, and it's such a great interview. In this episode, Sarah speaks with me all about her co-designed and collaborative research involving missing persons, suicide prevention, social media, and podcasting. So it's definitely not one to miss. You can find it and listen at swdiscoveries.com or on your favourite podcast platforms. And of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback on Twitter using the handle at SW Discoveries. Okay, that's it from me. Let's get on with the show and hear from our anonymous social worker. And of course, the thoughts and insights of our favorite podcast hosts, Liz and Mim. And I'll speak to you soon.
2: And good evening. Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy and I'm joined here by Dr. Min Fox. Good evening, Dr. Fox. Uh, good evening, uh, Liz Murphy. Uh,
3: and hello, everybody. Good evening makes us sound extremely formal tonight, actually. I think we
2: should shake it up.
3: Why? Do you think? Yeah, it's true. Not? We
2: often do a good morning. So, good evening makes sense. And it is evening, Mim. Let's not kid ourselves. It's a little later than what we had anticipated. But here we are. It's kind of sort of beginning of 2023, our second episode for the year. Do you know what? I think a lot of social
3: workers probably listen to this podcast on their way home from work. So, actually, good evening
2: is probably really appropriate, right? Well, then, good evening. Good evening, listeners. Good Good evening, evening, everyone. Good evening. (laughs) And what do we have today? We Uh, have... uh, I'm just going to say first up. Yeah. The topic for tonight's episode is something I hold so close to my heart. Mim, I cannot tell you. It's about what we call in New South Wales Family Conferencing, but our Victorian brothers and sisters call it Family Meetings.
3: And other people call them case conferences as well. Right. So there's a few interchangeable a few names here. But I think most social workers, particularly in hospitals, but it does happen in other settings as well, where the family is brought together uh, with a range of different professionals who are involved in their care in some way and in order to talk about a planned intervention or a planned action outcome for and with the family
2: would that the be the patient
3: summary well in the hospital it's the patient but yes. in other sectors like i'm thinking more about the child and family sector is where often it's the family with the child
2: of at the center of that yeah, that would that's be that's right so it, it, it takes place as you're saying in lots of different clinical settings that's right Our story tonight though is definitely set in a hospital in a rehab setting is my sense and this social worker similar to us feels very passionate about the role that social work has within really helping to shape a family conference um, in a way that centres around the needs of both patient and as you say Mim the family yeah. Um and I really I'd like listen to this this particular social worker has broken it down into stages.
3: Yeah, this this story is actually part instruction, part story, right? So good. Yeah, it's actually when you think about the curriculum that this uh podcast feeds into, this is really the episode where you're learning about family conferences. Yeah. It
2: really is, and he and he offers a an example to demonstrate how he works using those stages and I just feel like why why did I not have this when I started my career in health yeah I know so many family conferences that it took before I kind of got a sense of the power of the family conference the role that the social worker brings the language that you use yeah 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 but so this social worker is going to make some you know make it a lot easier for some of our our social work students our new grads and also some of our long in the tooth social workers. And I
3: think anyone coming new into a job where suddenly in this setting this is a crucial part of what you do. Yes. It's kind of a refresher as well about just that group engagement
2: that we often find ourselves needing to do. So let's listen and then of course we will come back and we will talk more about our thoughts about what we've just heard and also some of our practice examples and the power of family conferencing, right? Absolutely. Magic behind the curtain.
4: I wanted to talk today about family meetings um, and in the context where I work is in acute health within a regional health service. I wanted to talk about family meetings or, or, you know, they might be called other things in other places, but essentially they're a a formalised meeting between a patient, family members and the treating team, uh, that's supporting the person um, i I really wanted to highlight the role that social work has in these and the importance of social work being involved as a central um, a central facilitator and um, and worker within these contexts. Um, this is really because social work holds the psychosocial perspective within health where Others are focused on the medical model or the the, uh, the clinical or patient-focused issues. Social work holds the psychosocial perspective well. Um, we have an understanding of family dynamics. We can work with conflict resolution and mediation skills to negotiate around uh, various um, issues that may arise when dealing with Patients, families, and and their various complexities. Um, I wanted to talk to what is essentially a seven or maybe eight steps to a successful or conclusive family meeting, and uh, highlight this uh, with a case example through through from from my workplace. Um, when thinking about a family meeting, um, there's some pre-family meeting work that needs to happen. Um, and firstly it really needs to be clear what the intention of the meeting is it's it's not enough to for a doctor or um someone in the team to say I need a family meeting organized please thank you and and off goes the social worker we need to be really clear at that early point you know why what's it about and um what is the intention of the meeting are we wanting to resolve a discharge plan are we wanting to um, have the patient and family make an informed decision about various medical interventions or treatments or or what else. Um, there needs to be a lot of work around preparing for the meeting, preparing the family and preparing the treating team for a meeting and for both sides to have an understanding of what to expect from the other. I think a treating team informed about the family dynamics and who's going to Um, perhaps um, be driving things from the family or you know the issues that may arise or questions that may come up the information that we need to make sure we're prepared for before going into a meeting so that it doesn't become something to follow up later and for a family to know that this this is the treating team that's going to be coming to the meeting this is what will be discussed and and these are the um uh, the things that you might expect from it um That way they can also spend a bit of time perhaps preparing and writing questions and the like, and having a think about it. Um, The third sort of point is around safety. Uh, The role for social work, it's really important to ensure that there's going to be physical safety as much as emotional or cultural safety for patient, families attending, um, and making sure that it's accessible um, um, for people that can't get uh, to the, the meeting in person. When it comes to the actual meeting, it um, needs really clear introduction and boundary setting, uh, introduction to everybody and their roles and what uh, to be expected uh, within the meeting again, a repeating of the intention of the meeting and really encouraging lots of dialogue and interruptions and questions and answers as this is the opportunity for people to come together and actually ask those questions that they might have misunderstood along the way or had um Uh, not clearly described to them by the patient perhaps if it's a family member who's only heard about something from the the patient themselves and really i like to encourage the um the elephant in the room to be discussed you know sometimes not all families but sometimes there's a there's a tension there and it's really thick and you can feel it and it's hard to um ignore and let it go by without drawing attention to Uh, whatever the issue is needing to be named um, because um, yeah and you know calling it the elephant in the room um, just yeah giving uh, patients and families permission to be frank about the context a little more. Um, Through the meeting I guess then there's the clinician by clinician um, explanation or overview of what's been happening or how they might address the intentions some Q&A around that and, and some summaries of key points. Bit of a discussion at the end, and also before resolving whatever the intention was or uh, clarifying the the point to the meeting, it's really essential whether they are there or not that there's a time and place to really uh, talk to what is the voice of the patient um, and what their perspectives might be, and because sometimes family meetings become uh, dominated by lots of other voices, and it's important to make sure that um, all have an equal um you know and an equal amount of weight and um, understanding um and i guess from all that then making sure that if there is any decisions or um whatever the outcomes from the meeting are that they're repeated understood and um you know some actions from there i guess an eighth and final sort of step is the importance of the follow-up uh, importance of following up with the training team and debriefing and importance of following up with the family um around what's uh, what's happened making sure that everyone still feels okay and that they were heard and that they understand what's what's to come next so when i think about the setting that i work in um and a, a recent example of a family meeting it really it really comes back to this idea of you know what why do i choose social work in in hospital there's there's lots of parts of it that can be a little bit dry or frustrating, um, a little bit uh, admin-oriented. But when it comes to facilitating a really good family meeting, um, the, for me there's no greater joy in, in the work that I do and it's a big part of why I come in. I, I think back to recently a, a, a case of a, an elderly uh, patient, an elderly woman who had a significant left-sided stroke, leaving her with a lot of um, physical, functional communication, um, swallowing, you know, dietary, lots of deficits and things that weren't going well for her. And a a very distressed, though optimistic, you know, had pains to be optimistic husband who was um, the single point of contact in the hospital. Um, We had some contact from some family members who had felt uh, that they weren't being communicated to or they didn't have an understanding of what was happening. And we had a treating team who was after a, a, about a, a week into the stay, for, from their point of view, it was very clear that um, the trajectory that we were on for this um, for this woman. Um, and so we needed to, I guess, mutually, there was a, a, a desire from the family, but also a desire from the treating team to set a a family meeting. And so when it comes to the intention It was mutually agreeable that we needed to make sure everybody had an update of the information and the care provided throughout the um, patient's uh, stay so far and really start to um, plant some seeds or make some progress towards a discharge plan. Um, The preparation of the patient and the family was making sure that all that needed to be there were going to be there somewhere interstate or regional and needed to be, um, you know, access telehealth and make sure we had... um, that available and, and functional for everybody, and also spending a bit of time prior to the meeting to get a bit of a sense of um, who the key players were, what the dynamics were like uh, within the the family, and also to inform them about what to expect, but also then to be able to go to the treating team and convey a level of um, what to expect from the family and who you know their level of health literacy and where some of the stumbling blocks were. I think in Not so much a stumbling block, but one of the things that we needed to be sure of when it came to ensuring safety, there wasn't any family violence issues, there wasn't any cultural linguistically diverse um, features, but there was certainly a a need to honour the patient's husband's role as as the key person and the key decision maker. There was no legally appointed medical treatment decision maker as next of kin and certainly as the, I guess, the patriarchal figure within this family who the... Adult children were certainly not at all interested in challenging um, and wanting to make sure that any decision was his. Um, um, so we needed to make sure that our language was going to be, um, that everyone was support, there to support him um, in making the ultimate final decision. Um, so when it came to the meeting, running through all the roles and the treating team and everybody um, you know, being clear about what was to be discussed and what wasn't, um, really then to encourage interruptions and again the elephant in the room type question Um, and what was certainly um, conveyed by each of the treating team as it went through the questions and answers and I guess for the other part that I missed before was to say that during the questions and answers it's really um, a key social work role whilst facilitating the meeting to be able to interject and And ask what I would what are the silly questions you know something that might seem silly to um, a treating team but actually is very likely to be something that's um, sitting on the in the front of the mind of the patient or family uh, who don't necessarily have a medical degree and might be just wanting to clarify something and so there's lots of points for social work to really um, interrupt and and make sure things are, are clear because sometimes they're not clear to me so I I presume they might not be clear to at least one person in the, in the family um and really encouraging again that elephant in the room to get some of the sort of the honest discussions going from um in this case it was the husband and he was really uh, quite upset and needing to um really just offload the the um concern and worry that he had for his wife and um for us to no one to be taking any of that authority away from him and just really supporting him through what was a really difficult and tricky conversation where um, all the various uh, clinicians were describing all her deficits and um, basically a lack of hope and optimism for um, that you know, turning anytime soon uh, or at all in the future. So so what ultimately came to being a, a discussion around feeding and, and the fact that we had been you know using nasogastric tubing or enteral feeding through her nose and and that the patient had repeatedly been taking the tube out and then having to have it reinserted and it was a point of distress for for her and for the family and of course for the nurses and treating team as well who were wanting to i guess you know maintain dignity and and respect a patient's wishes but who was unable to actually communicate with them with us or anyone about what they were so i guess through the meeting it was really clear that um you know things aren't you know this this isn't a a, a full recovery enough to rehab kind of scenario this is essentially a you know we, we were keeping someone alive who had significant care needs and really the question sort of came, came down to what is the you know what is the plan for that and um i think when it comes to this point it was it's worth sort of introducing that idea around what would the patient say if she could, you know, if if your mum was here or if um, your wife was able to be part of this meeting, how would she feel about what we're talking about? How would she feel about us and having to reinsert the NG tube all the time? And really, when it comes to that, at that point, it was really clear to um, the team and and from the the family and, and husband's response to that, that, you know, the patient would have been wanting dignity and want and would have been hating the the concern or the or the worry that she might have become a burden on her family and so um the the tricky part was to i guess navigate the terrain which required a lot of reframing for the husband to understand that he wasn't killing her and he was really um, concerned about that or feeling that he was giving up um and quite flustered in, in uh, I guess, a, a sense that he was going to be responsible for her death. And so with, um, you know, it's a great privilege that I have a very um, terrific team that that's very sensitive to these issues. And we were able to, with the family support, do a lot of reframing and work in supporting him to not necessarily take action, but to um support the uh, withdrawal of um in invasive interventions that would have been distressing uh, potentially for the patient um so it was clear at the end what our adjusted goals of care were and that we needed to shift the the language and the energy towards comfort care and towards looking at how to honor and respect her, her dignity um uh, for this woman and her family and their relationships and um start to i guess shift some of the conversations around to uh yeah keeping her comfortable and um considering her legacy and and her life not just the uh end of life and her being unwell and having had a stroke and um um yeah the the death end sort of reshifting the the attention back to what can be some really lovely questions. So in my follow-up um, with firstly the first of the team to debrief and make sure everyone was on track and that we hadn't missed anything, but then on to supporting the family post family meeting um, and look at really introducing some of those, those concepts around uh, loss and grief and um, you know, the, you know, when did you two meet type questions or what what are the values that you think that you uh, hold on to that you've inherited from your mum. Um, and encouraging them to take time individually and notice the, the small things, that the the wrinkles and crease lines on her on her wrist, or the the hair, you know, the hair in her eyebrow, and those types of little small things that you only get a a little bit of time for when you're at that point, but perhaps are overlooked on the day to day. Um. So really, it was what what is essentially a fairly common occurrence um is can be challenging terrain to navigate but with a good effective planned prepared uh supported family meeting um it can be a real privilege to work with and then to spend the next few days uh with that family and the patient in in um working through her loss and her ultimate passing on the ward i think you know it's probably worth mentioning that not everybody passes away some people are you know at hospital some people are certainly very keen to get home and and try um a lot of families can really struggle to let go of that idea of that they you know um that as he did about that sense of uh feeling responsible for the death or that they feel that they may need to have tried more so sometimes that's the the path that things take and can be a little bit more drawn out with planning and processes around services and equipment at home. But for me, family meetings are a beautiful part of being in social work and a really good example of where we get to demonstrate our expertise and working with families in a positive, and the treating team in a positive way, in a supported way, in a planned, careful way. Um, it can make what is tricky conversation quite supported and uh, a real privilege.
3: Liz, when I was new into hospital social work, so I had been a social worker for about five years, maybe a bit less, but I was fairly new. I'd done some locum jobs in hospitals, but then I got my first permanent position in a hospital, right? right? And I turn up to work. So my experience of regular hospital social work practice was still fairly limited, right? Right. I turn up to work at 8.30 one day and for some reason I remember it was a Tuesday. Isn't that funny that you remember those details? But I do remember that. And I turned up to work and in those days we had to do a manual sign-in, you know, at the reception desk just because... Let's not kid ourselves, Mim. There are some of us,
2: including myself, who are still doing it.
3: Ah, uh, don't you love the paternalism of a bureaucracy? But um, I remember signing in and at sign-in... Uh, there was a note there for me to go and speak with my um, team leader and I went and met with the team leader and they said that one of my colleagues there had been a train accident and or there was some sort of yeah there was an accident of some sort near her house and she actually couldn't come into work that day and that I was needed to cover one particular thing for her. That thing, remember it was 8.30 in the morning, that thing that I had to cover was a 9 a.m. family conference.
2: Excellent.
3: Yeah. So I remember thinking to myself,
2: okay, <laughs> where will I start? Because um, you didn't know this. This You didn't know the patient, the family, the, no, the treating No, no prior team. knowledge whatsoever.
3: Excellent. And this story we've just heard and the stages we've just heard, I mean all of that prep work didn't apply this day, Liz, right? Like that, I had half an hour. So I had to prioritise what was it I was going to do. And I remember going straight up to the ward, making a beeline for the nursing unit manager, getting the lowdown, going straight to the notes, doing the quickest review of the notes I've ever done in my life, and then going straight to the family to try and maximise rapport building before this conference began, Right. Because despite the limited experience, my ethics and values and grounding in social work practice was telling me I had to know where the family and the patient were situated, right? I think that's the piece that actually, if you, if you have that, then it's much easier just to walk into a family conference. But without that, I always felt
2: looking back on that day now, that's the crux for me. Because it because I think the role, and thank you for that shortcut, so because mm. let us also be honest, this will happen in your career. absolutely. you know? You will definitely have this happen. And so you've also given us a, a great um, tip on what to go for, how to prioritise, and what I'm hearing you say is definitely get a get in there and get a sense from the family and the patient. About what their expectations and hopes are for this family conference. That's right. I think a lot of social workers, when they go into
3: social work practice, don't imagine they're the centre of the, the moment. Like, they don't imagine the spotlight on them. No. Right? But in a family conference, often it is because you're chairing it often. Right? And so I think...
2: You need to know as much as you can before that moment to feel confident in that role. You do so, because because many of us like to operate on the edge. Yes, um, there's a lot of edge work. There's a lot of invisible edge work. So mm. as this social worker talks about, there's a, so much prep that goes into so much. Getting the people in the room don't even get me started, but thank God we've got telehealth now so that people don't have to travel all the way down from, you know, Newcastle a hundred kilometres to get there whilst the consultant is there. But that aside, the actual the connection and the rapport building as you described Mm. that can take place prior to it. Yes. But both with with the family and the patient and also with the team. Yeah. Because if you work with a good team and they're often in rehab units, palliative care, ICU, where they're doing family conferences day in, day out. And they learn these skills together often. But... As you say, Mim, it is often the social worker who does a lot of the hosting, if you like. That's right. It's kind of like making people feel settled in this space, letting them know who's in the room, letting them know the purpose, reminding everyone, interpreting. And I loved how this social worker was saying, I'll often interrupt and ask the question that I know sitting there. I know it's sitting there, but I'll often be that person.
3: I love that idea that there's the social worker has permission to interrupt because in that family conference, it's quite a highly um, pressurised environment. Like the consultants and the, so the doctors and the nurses, they don't have a lot of time, right? It's often in the middle of their rounds. They're doing a number of things and this is the moment that they have to get in and give whatever news it is that they have to give and come out with whatever outcome they need, right? So, and then you've got all these people in different hierarchies so for a new social worker or a student social worker or someone who hasn't developed that professional confidence yet, it's quite, it can be quite intimidating to have suddenly the head consultant there sitting in a room with you, right, and the family. So I think actually you're right, actually being able to have permission to interrupt and to call out. The unasked questions and the freedom to say, I'm sorry, can we just stop a second and turn to the patient and say, did you understand what the doctor just said to you? You know, like that is the permission to do that, I think,
2: is very powerful. Because, Mim, you and I have talked about health being yep. a it's like going to the foreign country <laughs> and not only there's not a health generic language that's right so it is absolutely our role to say when you talk about a let's just say a very complex diagnosis What does that mean? Yeah. I'm sorry, am I the only person that that might just need you to explain that a little bit more Um, because I'm just not quite getting it and I figure if I'm not getting it, maybe other people aren't. That's right. Maybe the
3: 93-year-old in the centre of this entire discussion who maybe have hearing loss is not getting it. And I think that's the other piece to this puzzle, right, is that someone has permission in the room to always come back to the patient. What do they need? What are they thinking about? What do they want to have voiced in this space? Because it's so easy with so many people in that room and so many, so much rushing and so many competing agendas, it is so easy for the patient's voice to get lost. Absolutely.
2: And also for, let's just say, the carer in the room's voice as yes, well. Yes. How often is it our role to take on... The bearer of bad news in relation to how realistic it is for that person to expect that the daughter in law is going to be able to do the nasogastric tube feeding or the. That's right. So often we can take on that room to take the, that role so that the family member doesn't have to have it, that conversation. I can't care for you anymore, Dad. In that family conference, often it can be the health worker, the social worker that takes on that role, about the reality of the care, for instance. You know
3: the person in the room who I always really felt for? Who? It was the unacknowledged carer. So I always felt for the neighbour or for the, the long-term best friend, the um, informal partner, right? The person who gets kind of subsumed when the rest of the family come tru- trundling in for the all-important family conference and the voices are all very loud and they're all the formal next of kin or formal person and there's this person in the background who has
2: been doing the everyday caring, mm. right? So, so I mean, you raise a really interesting point. So one would would think that that would be something really useful for a social worker to discover yes, to ensure that that very pivotal person is somehow has a voice or has a role that's, that's brought up in the family meeting or the family conference.
3: Yeah. And that they're part of it as well. Like even if they may not be the main decision maker, that they're part of the consideration and the care around the discussion that's happening, mm.
2: you know? Mm. Yeah. Good point. I mean, so let's imagine now that, that you know, those, those beautiful stages, the prep work, the hosting, yeah. the actual um, having all of the people in the room share their views, listen to, we've got the note taking that's going on, the follow up. So I was really interested in that, that often it'll be the social worker that will remain with the family and the patient as the rest of the team Leads
3: yeah through. yeah and I think I've mentioned on the pod before Liz that um I've had some tricky moments in intensive care units where really awful news has been given to families um you know we need to stop the intubation or you know st- cease treatment whatever it is and um and the Intensivists, the consultants have rushed out of the room. The nurses what, to have, save a life, or something. Oh yeah, else. you know, just yeah. to do something else important, and and the nurses have rushed out as quickly as possible. And you're then left with a family who are bereft, who are, are in shock. Um, I've had situations where I've had the wall right next to my head punched because of the immense acute distress. Yes. I've had a computer thrown in a room after a family conference because of that. I do think um, as as skilled as social workers are in being there in those really difficult emotional moments, it, it can be a really tricky space to navigate as well uh, on your personal risk front but also on just holding all that emotion mm. because there can be so much emotion that comes out after the family conference is over.
2: And I think he raised that point about that's also part of the assessment, of yeah, the, in relation to the safety of the family, the patient, but also the the healthcare workers yeah. that, that that because of the nature of the news that might be being delivered, that needs to be factored in to your thinking around it, and who needs to be present and remain, but also think that, about what are the family's reaction going to be or the patient's yeah, reaction yeah, yeah. going to be, I Min. Mean, This is a very sophisticated communication process. Yes. And I guess I was wondering about, are social work students taught this form of communication before they get out to practice or whatever, or or, or placement? Or is that something that we tend to expose them to when they're in the the field? I think, um, look, I can only speak for some
3: programs, obviously, Liz, but... I do think there's a combination of skills that it takes to learn how to run a family conference, uh, how to facilitate one. And I think that comes in different ways in social work education. So um, I think firstly, it comes in through group work skills. And as you and I have spoken about here before, group work has gone up and down in popularity over the years. So group work is not always taught as a standalone subject anymore. Um, Often group work is put into the same subject as individual um, skills or family skills, right? And so s- social work students don't always get the full extent of group work skills, but that is, I think, the beginning of skills for a family conference. How do you hold a group dynamic? Mm. How do you contract at the beginning of a meeting? How do you host? How do you conclude, right? Um, those sort of um, the beginning and the end structural. Uh, skills I think are really important
2: and, and reading the dynamic
3: oh absolutely sitting the sitting in a building that you talked about that's earlier right. that's yeah. right sitting in a dynamic in a room and holding that dynamic and the emotion in the room really crucial and then I think there are programs that have uh, social work in healthcare subjects where actually and sometimes that's in a health aging disability sort of subject or it's in a subject where a couple of uh, pra- practice contexts are put together right Sometimes it's standalone health, but it's not a given. Uh, and in those subjects, you're more likely to see some really clear family conference skills being taught as well. And um, and in that sense, you're being taught about the multidisciplinary team in that environment as well and how they work together. And see, if you're lucky, you're taught that through simulation, Liz.
2: And I think, so even in the, the, the practice space, I think there's a lot of room to continue to develop your skills in using simulation, um, in family conferencing. And I feel like if you work as a team, you should train as a team around this and be really clear about the process, be really clear about the language used and the patient-centeredness of it. When you say if you work as a team, you should train as a team, do you mean the multidisciplinary
3: Absolutely. team? See, I don't know that I've ever heard of a multidisciplinary team doing training around family conferences together before. Yes, my friend, I have. I think that's incredible, Liz, and I would be advocating that
2: far and wide. That is Fantastic. fantastic. And in fact, for anyone who's in New South Wales Health, Hetty... So the Health Education Training Institute actually runs an interactive workshop that will come in and work with teams around family conferencing and the language and there's videos attached. And
3: I've seen the videos and used them with students. And I think, like, that is just essential, isn't it? Because you have to trust the other people in that room. And if you go back to my example, I not only didn't know the family, I didn't know any of the team members because it wasn't my ward. Not good. Yeah. No. Yeah, but it's
2: common. It's common, Liz. The only reassuring thing I have is that nowadays, most family conferences, there will be a social worker present. And I think, again, this is where we really shine. This is one of these ones that I think we're highly valued because we, as you say, we've got a lot of the skills to include multiple members of the group as well as multiple agendas that are going on and I think it's another thing we can be very proud of
3: yeah I think so too I really enjoyed this story Liz because I like I said before it's that combination of how to combined with a real really real story that we would see every day in
2: practice right Mm. yeah so a big thank you to that social worker to share some deep thinking around you know to actually to have picked out those stages Awesome, yeah, um, and we will definitely be using it as a as a tool for both staff and for students. It's beautiful, so yeah. thank you. Um, and I guess I hope it falls well and it helps our social work colleagues out there.
3: Look, if if anyone is listening to this episode and thinks this was actually a really valuable resource for you then we would really like to know so get in touch um and uh yeah give us your feedback i think uh, i get a sense that these are the episodes that people find useful um there are other episodes that people find emotionally engaging right but i think this is one of the ones that actually can be applied really easily so let us know anyway um and uh we hope you're all taking care of yourselves out there weather's starting to get a bit cooler
2: so um Uh, For me, that's a sweet relief, Liz, I have to say. Look out, listeners, we're going to the weather. So I think that means a (laughs) wind-up. So we'll we'll see, we'll we'll tune in in another month's time. Yeah, yeah. the the weather will be even cooler then. I'm sure it will be.
3: Take care, everyone. (laughs) Bye-bye.
0: I love it. Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de-identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice, no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work we do, We would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way, you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and write a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com. The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Liz Murphy, Dr. Mim Fox, Justin Stesch, Dr. Ben Joseph, and Maddie Stratton. Thanks so much for listening.